This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the movie podcast. My name is Daniel. I am one of your hosts today and joining alongside me are my fellow members of the Trinity Test. It's Shabazz. Hello, 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 chaps. And it's Anthony. What's up? Nice and shy. <laughs> I never know. All the years that we've been doing this show, I never know no. what to expect when I kick it to Anthony for something. Like, I, I'm I never trying to know. think, like, what would they do in 1942? And I'm like, oh, I, I don't think they'd do something. I think they just, they wouldn't do that. But I'm from the no. future, so they would. Oh, so you, but, you still said, what would they do in that era? But I'm from the future. I, but I'm not going to do it. But I'm not going to do it. Gonna do it. <laughs> well, like, dude, just yeah, would gonna, walk into a, a room, have a cigarette in their mouth, and like, yeah, throw it at well, someone. This and was then your moment. This write was your a moment. bunch of throw a cigarette. I don't have one. I've missed. I misplaced mine. <laughs> you misplaced <laughs> one. Okay, that's one a cigarette. whole other. That's a whole other thing. Uh, today on the movie podcast, you know, we have Oppenheimer fever because we cannot stop watching this movie. We cannot stop talking about this film, and we are so lucky to be joined. By Academy Award winning VFX supervisor Andrew Jackson, who is a longtime collaborator with Nolan. He's worked with him since Dunkirk, so the last three films. He won an Oscar for Tenet, and now he is back working with Nolan once again on Oppenheimer, which is a film that I know everyone watching this and everyone listening has gone to go see because it is killing it at the box office right now. It is doing so, so well. And there's probably a lot of questions out there. Did Christopher Nolan drop a real bomb? What is it real? Is this CG? Is it not? 
We have the answers for you because this is the movie podcast. Every single week, you could catch brand new episodes with reviews and interviews on all the latest movies and series. We also have great main episodes that you catch us talking all about the news, topics of the show, trailers, everything else that's going on in the movie world. And of course, I do want to acknowledge that we know that there's a writer strike going on right now. We know that there's an actor strike. We 100% stand with the writers and the actors on strike right now for studios to pay them what they deserve. Um, but we will continue to doing our show, you know, as we see fit, as interviews are coming our way to cover and to talk to the different people part of the production. This opportunity with Andrew was one that we really wanted to, you know, get inside his head and see exactly all the work of the hundreds of people that worked on Oppenheimer, you know, got to bring to the big screen and to the biggest of screens on IMAX, which Shay, I really like your IMAX hoodie, buddy. What? This old thing? Oh, that old thing? Oh, it's not an old thing. It's a oh, new thing, man. Thing. It's a pretty new one. Oh, and, and look at these, man. Look at these. Oh, let me just pull mine out right now, too. And I, I, I think you have one as well. I, I feel like but, they're uh, counterfeit, man. These are all straight from China. No, these are not whoa, whoa. real, legitimate. Mine says the Max. Mine just says Max on it. Not even the IMAX. <laughs> just Max yo, film. Yo, it's, it's, is it HBO Max? It's not uh, <laughs> it's, or it's no, Max. It's, not, <laughs> this it's is, just Max. This is not a, a Warner Brothers production. Uh, no, oh. I did want to say, uh, yeah, I, I really love the hoodie. I have one as well, too, but I have the inverted colors of it where it's black and white. So I guess right. this is white and black. Um, but something that we've been dying to get our hands on is this Oppenheimer film print. Uh, because if you go to see Oppenheimer on, I guess the first Friday of each week where it's released, I know that was a really convoluted way of saying that uh, you would get this film print and we wanted to get it. And then it's been gone because tickets to go see Oppenheimer in 70 millimeter, 70 millimeter IMAX have been impossible to get. We've luckily that we've seen it. Anthony, you think you've seen it three times in, I just, I just buy tickets. I take them all. I'm like the Oppie. Oh, uh, you're, Oppie you're, monster. you're on StubHub, I just, eh? I just gobble them Oppie all monster. up. And then I, <laughs> like, and then I, I don't even, like I don't even this. sell them. They're just mine. No, They're all you mine. Go, you go watch, you, you, you just go watch buy it. them so you can have more I don't even watch it. You, no, uh, no, no, I, I watched it three times. I don't, whenever this comes out, I might've watched it a fourth time. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I've seen it four times, twice in glorious 70 millimeter IMAX. I did see the digital version of IMAX, which looks great as well, too, but I did miss the giant, you know, aspect ratio shift. Um, but really quickly, just going back to Shay's hoodie, go check out Shay's really, you know, creative unboxing of that uh of that hoodie. I, I really love it. I really love like some of the the modeling that you do in that video as well. Thank too, you. So I you know it was in my past that. life I was gonna be a model. Oh, an IMAX, you know, IMAX uh, model. clothing model. Yeah, I love it. Thank you very much to Universal Pictures for inviting us to do this interview uh, and to our friends at DNEG and to Andrew for sharing their time with us today. Uh, there is so much that goes into a movie like Oppenheimer. And when you look at the visual effects, you look at the production behind it and always trying to shoot something practically as Nolan is famous for. Uh, I'm just so glad that we got to, you know, give Andrew you know, the platform to just take us to school because I felt like we were just sitting there watching him talk and telling us all these things and just like geeking out with him about the most, you know, technical things of the film that we don't even think about, obviously. Could have listened to him for hours. constantly thinking about. Oh, yeah, easily. We could have sat here for hours happily and hopefully we'll get to have him on the show again. Make sure you're following us on all social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Letterboxd, at The Movie Podcast. We're having some great conversations going on right now in Discord about Oppenheimer. So if you're looking for an outlet to talk all things Oppenheimer, join our Discord. It's the best place to talk about this movie, TV shows, 
Dino, which is with Shabazz right now, we should open up a Dino channel as well, too, Shane. It's just us fucking or dropping dog emojis. Say on the on the mic there, Dino. No, no, he's quiet. He's like, listen, I no, he's quiet. He's he's he said all he needs to say. Put him on the Uh, bomb, but without (laughs) put him on the bomb. (laughs) He'll survive. He'll be good. Don't listen. Don't listen. And but it's funny though because his name is Dino. It's like dynamite, right? <laughs> right, exactly that. Yes, you know, Anthony's Anthony's thinking on on all uh, cylinders here. You're right. Uh, but without further ado, let's get right to it. Oppenheimer is, of course, now playing at theaters. You could go watch it. Go watch it again. We absolutely love it. But please welcome Academy Award winning VFX supervisor Andrew Jackson to the movie podcast. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us on the movie podcast. You know, we've we've all seen Oppenheimer multiple times at this point and i think we just remain completely shocked by what you dineg nolan and the entire team have been able to pull off it's been um really well received hasn't it um, across the board by critics and audiences which is fantastic it's always good to work on a project that um that is so popular definitely yeah and, and Absolutely. you can only imagine how uh just your your lineage with Dean Egan, obviously with working with Nolan, it's I feel like it's all culminated to this film. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's certainly this the um, the work that we did on this film was a more extreme version of the of the approach we've had on all of Nolan's films. You know, like he's never been a big fan of the big you know computer graphics world. So um, and this one was absolutely um, tailored to to be as practical and in-camera effects-based as possible. Absolutely. Now, Andrew, as a VFX supervisor, how would you describe your job? Um, well, I guess it changes a lot during the course of the project, but um, I mean, the best and um, the biggest part of it is solving the the challenge of getting what's on in the script onto the screen. Like, there's things that most of the script can just be filmed and edited and up it goes, but there's obviously things in every script that that can't be filmed or um, aren't really straightforward how they're going to be filmed. So solving that challenge is is the first part, and that's the bit that I love. Which you know, reading the script and and kind of working out how to approach each of those components in the story that um, that are not really straightforward. And there's always so many different ways to approach that you know we're not always but often there are multiple solutions possible solutions you know from you know obviously full cg one end there's practical solutions there's our department quite often is a like set building or building props and you know there's all sorts of different um stunt department like quite often there's a you know challenge because it's not safe or um you know, it's challenging physically for the performers. So there's so many different ways that the different departments interact to come together and solve that the the challenging components in a in a script. And um and that's a part of the process that I really enjoy. It's is that early pre production where all the departments are kind of negotiating what's the best outcome for the film but also what's possible what's achievable and um and it's a really rewarding component of the of the of my my job absolutely yeah and especially working with Nolan, i'm sure all he's doing is just throwing problems at you and you're like okay well i have to solve this today <laughs> yeah yeah with chris though he's very um 
very collaborative and very open to, you know, considering lots of different options, like how to solve each thing. He's not like, he doesn't get like really 100% set in in one solution and, and just drive everyone to, towards that one solution. He's very kind of um, open to to negotiate, I suppose, with the other departments, what, what works for everyone and obviously for him as well but um it's quite a, it's quite a, a rewarding relationship that um collaborative process and and coming up with the the best solution for him the story well really the film i guess primarily is the is the number one um thing that that we wanted to um you know we it's always got to be the best solution for the film it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Andrew, how did you get your start in VFX? Um, well, I I came from a, I trained building models and miniatures, and um, and I sort of moved sideways into practical effects. I had my own company for fifteen years doing building um, practical effects and miniatures, and I kind of moved sideways from there into visual effects. But then, in my kind of visual effects career, I've always kind of tended to to sort of have a foot in both camps if you like and i've always looked at every um film and the you know the effects that are needed in every film from with with both of those hats on so i'm I'm kind of always bearing in mind what can be filmed what can be practical what can be miniatures what can be um what absolutely needs to be cg sometimes there's you know no choice so um so that was my um that was where i started yeah and then I'm guessing you moved you moved into Dineg and that was where you are currently and working till this day. Yeah. Um, well, I grew up in the UK and moved to Australia when I was in my early twenties. And I, um, seven or eight years ago, I wanted to move back to the UK for a little while just to be around my parents while they were still around. And um, and that was when I started at Dineg, and um, it was also when I first was introduced to Chris. Um, we had a meeting really actually before I'd even started at DNA to see if um if I could be a good fit in his um in his production team. And because of my practical background history and being in visual effects, that was it did seem to be a very good fit. Like that we you know we got on well, talked for a while and had the similar sort of attitude towards the way that we both like to approach effects um and so that was dunkirk was the first um project that i worked on with him and that and you know as as you said i've been with dinig and doing chris's films from that point on so i'm guessing going forward now when you're when you're working or when nolan's working on a film does he just call you up and he's like you know andrew i have an idea let's let's brainstorm this or how does how does that collaboration work between the two of you yeah, well, um, I mean, it's exactly that. I get a call and, you know, he's got a new script that um, he wants me to read. On this 
particular project, I learned um, fairly recently that I was actually the first person after Emma, whose wife and producer, who'd read the script. So, um, and the reason for that was because he he really had this idea that he you know there were all these ideas that in the script that needed to be illustrated and he really didn't want them to be computer simulations so he wanted to get me started early thinking about how we were going to do that and what what was going to be the process so that was why he got me in so early to read the script so i could start that sort of process and i would um go away and think about you know what what the script needed and then i came back to him with some ideas and um i actually showed him a whole like i made a little um grid of a whole lot of things i had shot over the years and quite often they're just little tiny experiments or tests that that are really only done to um to inform a visual effects solution so quite often i'll film something so that we have a reference that is real filmed element that we then reproduce as a visual effects element so i've got dozens of these little things that i've filmed over the years i put them all together in a grid and i just and on a loop and i just said so is that is that is there anything in there that that sort of sparks your interest is that in the right sort of language that we're that we're looking for and he said absolutely it was it was exactly what he had in mind so there were there were little um quick to build simple ideas things that could be filmed easily and look good on camera and um and so we took that um that idea and then and then i sort of spent an, another two months prior to pre-production starting out properly um just working with scott fisher the special effects supervisor in his workshop in la and i was just coming up with ideas simple things building them trying them out filming them on you know just on digital still cameras or iphones at a high frame rate so just capturing all these little ideas and tests and um and then we would um when we had a, a decent amount of stuff to show i'd, I'd have a meeting with chris and i'd show him everything we were working on and you know some things you know if you like the ideas we developed them further some things he might have liked but didn't feel right for the film so they would stop you know we so that process went on for a couple of months well actually continued right through the whole shoot in fact but um for this film that was that was the process so very interactive very kind of um chris give he give he always does give me a lot of kind of freedom really to experiment and find solutions to the to the needs of the film but this this project even more so and um and that that was that was a really good um process having that kind of freedom to experiment and yeah it was also great to be able to get back in a workshop again i haven't actually been in that sort of workshop environment for quite a long time so that was that was a really good thing that's incredible and i think the work that you guys have done on this film you see it all on the screen and i think one of the biggest things that you know we were hearing leading up to the release of oppenheimer was does oppenheimer use cgi and and chris in in some of the interviews coming up for for the release of the film was saying that there are mm -hmm. no cgi there's no cgi shots in this film there's no cgi in the yeah. movie does oppenheimer use cgi well the, i think that there's a lot of confusion around that whole topic and you know the 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 exact definition of of cgi vfx and even sfx i mean 
the vast majority of the public talk about, oh, you did great SFX or, or you know, VFX. In the broader public, people don't really know exactly what each of those titles really mean. So um, what the way I would describe it is that on this film, all of the visual effects were done with filmed photographic elements. So there's no computer-generated kind of like all of the raw input into the visual effects that we made was photographic. So everything was based on filmed elements um, or stills, um, but always photographic. So that we didn't build CG geometry and texture and light and render it. And so that that's what I think of as computer-generated components and as opposed to uh, visual effects which can be just 2d compositing or you know more complex 2d um affecting of filmed plates so yeah there's i think um around 200 shots that you could well there's about 200 shots that we worked on and filmed that are in the film but only half of those about 100 were actually worked on in post so a lot of the what I call effect shots just got cut straight in without having any work done. And um, and then there were other effects that we did on set and were filmed um, with the actors. In I don't know if you, you remember noticing there's some scenes where Oppenheimer's really disturbed and the background's moving. Well, that all that work we did as a real projection on set while while the performance wow. was happening yeah that's really impressive it reminded me a lot of um and it's funny because it's killian murphy as well uh in batman begins with scarecrow uh like the scarecrow effects where it's like you, like you've had that fear and it like I'm, I'm curious if it was the same uh nolan being nolan i'm curious if that was the same way of you know yeah i'm not sure how i'm not sure how that was done but the way we did it was to take photographs of the set um from a point of view quite close to the camera and then put that still photograph through a, a ripple effect in after effects and then project that back from a big projector next to the camera onto the exact same piece of geometry and lined it up perfectly so the, the the deformed version was exactly lining up with the real set so it's like a you know it's actually a technique that we use in 3d um all the time of you know camera projecting but this was a real version so a real photograph and a real projector onto a real set and so all the performance was filmed in front of that and all of that stuff's happening in real time just behind the actor that's amazing and i, and I think for for all of us uh that moment every time we've seen the moment when the trinity test happens and the it detonates i don't think we've had a screening where there is a just dead silence of people just in awe of what they're seeing on screen it's it's tr it's very moving it's very moving yeah yeah i love yeah. that um, that moment after the bomb goes off and the and the complete silence which is actually accurate because they were so far away from the detonation it took that long for the sound to reach the people and some of the the more distant observation points but that for me that was like the most powerful moment that that silence it was um quite phenomenal like you almost held your breath didn't you
Yeah, I think we all did. I think we were all kind of just holding our hands together during that scene as well. It was very, very impactful. And you, you brought up, you know, CGI and VFX, and those two terms are so often linked together. Why do you think people can confuse them so often? Well, I guess, um, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's quite a... Um, um, a particular division, isn't it, between those two things? And I think most people in the public don't really, to be honest, think that much about the two terms. From, you know, like why would they? They don't need to. It's just they're all sort of bundled together. And and you know, like I said, out there in the public, the the difference between SFX and VFX is also um, confused. Like people use both terms. Um, uh, uh, um, to describe what we do, um, although interestingly, that um, that idea of the the sort of confusion between special effects and visual effects being, you know, the accurate description of the difference, obviously, is that special effects are, you know, the things that happen on set in camera explosions. All of the, the practical stuff is the special effects department. Visual effects is the department that that do work typically imposed or you know after the after the shoot but on chris nolan's films and the way that i like to approach um the effects that we do is and chris absolutely kind of um encourages this that he treats the all of the effects as one as one thing it's like he doesn't he doesn't care whether it's sfx or vfx doing it it's just effects like you guys work it out and and it is very much a combination. Like Scott Fisher and I have worked together on three films now, and he's fantastic. He's incredibly experienced, done so many huge movies. But, you know, when he and I work together, because of my background in practical effects as well, um, it's a really collaborative process, and we just get together and, and talk about, you know, obviously with the sort of Nolan approach to filmmaking we know that we're going to try and find ways that we can film everything and so he and i sit down and we go through all of the script and work out what can we do and how we're going to do it and um and so in in the in chris's films um as i said that sort of merging of all of the effects into one is um is actually a really positive thing i love it um looking at looking at it that way and you know quite often on other shoots you know you I get a sort of bit of pushback if I'm if I'm trying to film a lot of things that other departments consider should just be dealt with by visual effects. It's like, oh, you know, you're shirking your responsibility. You're you know you're trying to push work onto other people, but that's not really the the that's not true at all. The reality is that I'm just trying to approach everything with whatever's best for the film. So, you know, whatever the best solution is, um, that's kind of the the starting point. And we'll work out later which department's doing what and, you know, that aspect of it. So, but it's always really good to work with people where you don't have that, where everyone and it and it helps a lot when the when the director's hundred percent on board, it's much easier to push that you know, going for a practical solution because it's not always easier, you know. It's, it, often people want to postpone effects work to post so they don't have to deal with it on set. Because, you know, working on a shoot's hard already. Yeah. it's a, yeah, People are always looking for ways to um, to make it a bit easier. 
Yeah. Now, Andrew, how does your job change when a film like this is shot on film versus digital? I, I was thinking about that. I guess um, on this film, because we we're shooting on, not just on film, but IMAX film. So that's that's um, a big chunk of negative going through the camera like this. And um, and you are very aware of that. You know, like, and quite often we're shooting in in visual effects world we're shooting at higher frame rates we can only go to 48 frames on an imax camera but that's still like one and a half minutes or less per ro thousand foot roll so you know you really think long and hard about when you're ready to press that button to roll the camera and so what happens with this on i'll talk about this specific project we we did a lot of tests on digital cameras and as I said on even iPhones shooting at high frame rates and and testing the the setup or the the little rig that we were about to film until we were really confident that it was exactly what we needed and then we would um swap out for the film camera well on a digital shoot you might not do that you would shoot on the digital camera your test because you know who knows it might be brilliant and you've be cursing because and, and that does happen you know like you do a perfect test and you wish you'd rolled on the film <laughs> so um i think with um that would be a major difference between digital and film is that you're you're a lot less kind of cautious about when to roll the the actual film camera although having said that you know you end up with hours of footage on a digital shoot that someone has to deal with and you know there's a lot of material that has to be you know edited and and make selects from so there's a sort of um there's something i quite enjoy from that film working with a film camera is is the fact that it does focus your i don't know this changes the um the way that you use a camera because you know it's more precious you know you don't just keep rolling for hours you know it's like you're you kind of make sure everything is as good as it can possibly be before you start filming and i think and that goes across a lot of the departments you know you see on digital shoots you know people just the camera just keeps rolling and they're doing stuff and it's like there isn't that sort of laser focus that you get especially with like large formats cameras where you know the the number of dollars that are racing through the camera every second so, <laughs> um but yeah it's a, i think it's a good good thing i enjoy shooting on film even though it really it's harder but i do like that aspect of it yeah i can't i can't imagine like being <laughs> you know shooting on film and being perfect is very important to the whole aspect of this movie because it is completely all on film. So you want to make sure that what you're shooting is going to look good. And yeah, it makes sense to have it shot digitally before to test it out yeah. and get those, those bugs out of the way. So when you do it on film, it works and, out. And also with Chris, because, um, he, ultimately he would love to be able to take the negative and cut because he cuts the neg he doesn't go through a di doesn't scan the film he he wants to be able to cut the negative into the film and so for us when unlike normally when i'm shooting visual effects element i know that there's going to be lots of work done to it so not so worried about the detail the edges you know or quite often we want visual effects 
elements to be completely contained within the frame easily so that we can blow them up a little bit. None of that works for him because he wants a frame that looks good without any work. So so we're shooting visual effects elements which which are perfectly composed and and framed nicely so that they stand up as standalone shots. I was going to mention also a really good example of the challenges of shooting on film with um, on Dunkirk we were shooting uh, miniature planes from a helicopter with an IMAX camera at high high frame rate so we had um we had like a just over a minute of time to shoot so we had to get the the RC planes they were really big RC planes in the air follow them out over the water with the helicopter and then and then we had like one just over a minute of time to shoot that before and then we had to bring them all back land them reload the camera so like that process was was like massively challenging but when you got something good the reward the sense of achievement was huge you know you just felt so good that you'd managed to get those you know shots in in camera because you know there's all sorts of challenges you have cameras jamming and you know the I see planes would stop working and crash into the sea and, you know, all sorts of things that could go wrong. It's funny that Nolan loves having time as part of so many of his movies and you feel that effect of being, especially like a movie like Dunkirk, being on the clock with shooting (laughs) as well too. That's funny. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was very much, very much that way. Um, But again, like I said, the the sense of achievement is huge when you do manage to get that and it looks so good, you know, like some of those, you know, because we also had full-size real planes so we had like three spitfires flying around dog fighting and and on imax um and and if you get to see that film in an imax cinema it's amazing it really is how do you begin to plan what a bomb is going to look like and how do you approach that practically um well i mean we just knew that we had to get as big an explosion as we could do so that was very much um in scott fisher's camp like you know how big can we make this and we you know had um five four drums of big drums of fuel and a high explosive under that to to get the fuel in the air and and the light and then we filmed that from multiple cameras at different frame rates and you know so so we could slow it right down and make it make it feel bigger i mean it was really just just pretty straightforward making as big an explosion as we could safely do and then layering that up to make it feel even bigger than it than the actual one that we filmed um yeah so i don't think there was really ever any that wasn't actually as big a challenge you know we always knew what we needed to do right from the start that that was going to be that process so and also i think the way that it was cut the you know using close-up detail sections of that which which really helped sell the the scale and the horror of it yeah i'm wondering too andrew like when because it was not even just like the nuclear bomb that we're seeing go off uh it's also like that subatomic world within the bomb that we're seeing and we're seeing all these like different experience uh experiments and you know mm. it looks like galaxies and all of that like how, how do you even like begin to try and like make that like look believable and real and like how do you even approach those type of experiments to 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 make it well that look like that was that um that sort of two month period before the 
shoot that um just in a workshop i mean from i guess from experience that i had in the past i knew some of the kind of tricks that we were going to use things like um you know metal particles in water swirling and and like in big tanks and we had we had special um lenses made for the imax cameras that were long probes that we could kind of and we had the tank with a with a hole with a like a, a rubber sleeve that you could poke the the lens right into the water and um and that those were some of the um the sort of starfield effects that we that we achieved we had um spinning beads and magnets and ball bearings and just like hundreds of different ideas that we tried um and um you know some of those spinning beads spinning like the 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 shots of the that were simulating the electrons orbiting the nu nucleus of an atom we did with um with beads spinning on wires that were brightly lit so the wires disappeared and vibrating and shot them at a really high frame i'm sorry very slow frame rate so they had a very long exposure so they were like very long um blurred lines and and wobbling as they went through because we were always looking for that that idea of um, combining particles and waves and that and that was a, a sort of very strong kind of idea that ran through a lot of the work that we did but yeah th those those were the the just like trying stuff out shooting and and i, I think i mentioned before the we had these sort of rules that were that everything we attempted had to be really quick like we couldn't i didn't want to spend any like days or weeks building some elaborate setup before we could shoot something it had to be things that we could do in a day or less you know and get a get some kind of a test out quickly um and know whether to continue or or whether to ditch it because it was not very interesting you know but that that was the process we just went and shot a whole lot of little ideas and kept going until we had some of them some of the ideas we knew straight away were were really good and, and would work go straight like the you know lines in the script that that were covered easily and then there were other other parts of the script we never quite knew how we were going to do but we shot a whole lot of other material that um quite a, some of the stuff we filmed we didn't actually know how we were going to use it but we knew it was great and we knew that yeah. it would get used um but we just hadn't worked out exactly where and how until later on in post um one of the things that that um was like that was this material called thermite i don't know if you've heard heard of it but it's a it's just a mixture of aluminium powder and and iron oxide and when you set fire to it 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 burns at 4000 degrees fahrenheit and turns into molten iron and it, and the like the um the chemical reaction is is quite impressive and and you end up with this sort of lake of molten metal that has an amazing surface and and the you know the smoke that comes off it's and it's so bright it's right incredibly bright and molten drops of iron if you do it high and let it drop it's so like we filmed a ton of that stuff and used it all over the place in in various different shots um it was really useful but yeah that but but uh, right up until the end of the shoot we still really had no idea where or how we were going to use it we just knew it was great 
and uh, so we show lots of that. That's amazing. That's amazing. I just want a, I just want a, 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 a like an hour loop of those just so I could have like as a screensaver yes. just to like chill out and watch. Yeah, it. it'd be, be cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it constantly good, feels yeah. like I might oh, do ahead. that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, please, <laughs> please. And send, send it to us right away. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it constantly feels like you're on the cutting edge of you know VFX and you're constantly pushing this this medium forward. What do you? What would you say the future of VFX looks like? Well, it's interesting because I don't, I don't know if I'm on the cutting edge. I feel like more often that we we're sort of um, going back to like a different era of of effects, you know, by using using cloud tanks, and it's very much a sort of pre CG world that that's kind of where this sort of work is. Um, so I don't. I think that sort of. I don't know. That maybe that is a a um a direction that visual effects is going in is that people want to see that visceral earthy practical you know we've we've all seen enough of the limitless cg world building you know we can we know that there are you can have whatever you want now anything you can dream up we can make and you can it doesn't matter how big the scale or you know, there's wall-to-wall visual effects in movies now. I don't. I think the audience is like they're not impressed anymore with the uh, with the enormous kind of visual effects. It's like people want to see it used in a more nuanced way, and and so I think that that might be one aspect of the future of visual effects is that people are going to be more picky and choosy about what what they like in a film and and the way visual effects is used. But then I think also the other thing that's going to affect us all, not just in visual effects, but and not just in filmmaking, but in the whole world, is the the sort of impact of AI on the work that we do. And and I mean, hopefully, the best case scenario is just going to be another tool that makes um, laborious work quicker and enables us to do more, more easily and more quickly. And um, and I still think there's going to be. You know, there's still going to be the roles for the creative people to to drive that new tool to where it needs, where we need it to, or to to make the things that we need it to deliver, and to know whether it's been successful or not. You know, to have that sort of creative input and to be able to judge the output and put it together in a way that makes sense. And I think you know, if we're not careful, there'll be a a sort of reaction against. Um, obviously AI generated images, which we already can spot now, you know, it's like, we've all seen amazing images being generated by AI tools, but you go, oh, yeah, I can spot them straight away. Oh, yeah, that's a AI image there. So I think there'll be a, a kind of reaction against that. And um, until it gets to a point where you really can't tell. But I think that so that's clearly going to be a a major direction in the in the visual effects world, like as I said, like in in every aspect of our lives, I think. And and it's funny that you uh, you mentioned that Oppenheimer and and the, you know the the future and where you're relying so much on the methods of the past, uh, but you, we're seeing the success of that with Oppenheimer and IMAX on seventy millimeter IMAX film. Like those screenings are like impossible to get tickets to. So I feel like there is like this want of people wanting to go, you know, almost back to that, you know, that, that time of film and of these mm. practical effects. And 
Oppenheimer's success, I think, is is evident of that, right? Yeah, it's fantastic to be involved in um, in a project that feels like that with that and and Barbie has kind of reinvigorated theatre going. And you know, I think it's it's a combination of various things, isn't it? It's like the post COVID, we're finally kind of back to going out and enjoying, and people have sort of forgotten put that behind us. And yeah, but also just that idea. I think that you know, everybody's been sitting in their living rooms watching streaming services we've done that for so long and it's just really good to get out and experience the big screen collective you know like there's a, it's a different thing watching a movie with a whole lot of people there's no question about it you know you 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 see things differently when you're in a big room full of people than you do when you're in it doesn't matter how big your television is it's not the same you know so we you know we wanted to ask you with oppenheimer being so successful and being the film that people are going multiple times uh, you know for myself speaking for myself i've gone four times and i'll go a fifth if i could get tickets to see it in imax again but i i'm curious for you who's someone who's who's looked at every frame of this movie what's something that you want audiences to look out for next time they watch oppenheimer oh um I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't pick any one particular thing. I don't think. I think I. I just like enjoy the um, the the visual. Um, for me, all of the those sort of like visual bits and pieces that we made throughout the film. Um, there is one. I mean, I love that. Um, uh, probably one of the, my favorite things that we did was the um it's in, in the very first opening sequence with the it's that sort of um um plasma ball that um we, it's like the first couple of split like nanoseconds of the explosion that um if you've ever seen any of the the extremely high speed reference like um archival footage that was shot and there's uh, like, like that big ball with the spikes coming out, and that—that's probably one of my my favourite um, things that we did. But really, yeah, just sort of um, enjoying all of those little um, ideas of that, the the things that were going on in, inside his head when um, when he's kind of thinking about the the physics in the um, early part of his career. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Some beautiful, beautiful sequences there. And wondering and curious, were there any sequences in Oppenheimer that were heavily VFX driven, but probably not noticeable to the human eye that maybe you could speak on? Um, well, I guess not, not really. I mean, the, the, um, the stuff that we worked on was pretty obvious. It's all, all of the, um, the, the, you know, subatomic particles, the, you know, space, black holes, stars, all of that stuff. There was very, very little work done outside um, of those things. There was there was hardly any, you know, period fixes or, um, you know, environment work. There was really very little in that. In uh, the way there would normally be on most films, a whole lot of kind of cleaning up the background. But... With Chris, that doesn't happen. He cleans it up before he shoots it, and then um, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't need to do that. So yeah, there was, there's there's really not a lot going on um, behind the image that you wouldn't know about. 
um, that there often will be. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, Andrew, you know, we cannot thank you again for the time that you've allotted for us today. Uh, like I said, we are in such awe of the work that you do, and we cannot wait to see what you get to work on from here and hopefully, you know, future collaborations with Christopher Nolan. We'd love to have mm. you back on the movie podcast anytime you'll have us. Um, you were absolutely lovely to talk to. And and guys, if there's anything you want to uh, add to that, you know, just. Oh, absolute joy. Thank you. It was such a joy talking to you. No, no it's a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for having me. Okay. Thanks a lot. And welcome back. Anthony, I want to start with you. Um, First thoughts coming out of an interview like that, where we really got to get inside the mind of someone who was so instrumental to the look, the feel, the actual explosions of Oppenheimer. What's going through your mind right now? Look, this guy was Oppenheimering us because he's like the Oppenheimer of visual effects right now. He was just the, the what he was saying. I was just like, what's ha- what? What? Do you, how? <laughs> like you have to be like literally a genius, and he is a genius. Yeah, he was telling us everything about how they made this movie to even went into Dunkirk and how they shot the miniature planes and with IMAX camera. I was laughing at that moment because it was just, it was just, I was picturing it. I'm like, this guy in a helicopter with a big IMAX camera shooting these little planes, (laughs) but they're going to look fantastic. And just his explanation on, you know, CG versus VFX, like just mind boggling. I like VFX and any type of artist in that world is so they're just they're unique people and they are amazing at what they do and to create I think what we see on screen uh, if it's computer generated if it's practical it's magic like to to this point in my life whenever I see something like that that is not real and it's shown to us like it's real it's magic I'm I just flabbergasted um, with everything he taught us today. Yeah, and, and I love that you said it's magic because movies are magic and seeing a movie like Oppenheimer or so many other movies that feel like they have transported us somewhere else, that is a magic trick. That is something that is happening before our eyes that just teleport us to another place. Shabazz, you asked a really great question about what do you think the future of effects looks like? Uh, I'd love for you to start us off with you know responding to his answer because he did incorporate AI and a lot of different aspects of that. So yeah, let us know what you thought of the interview. And I'd love for you to, you know, to start with that kind of futuristic aspect of VFX. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, what I love is that he initially kind of started off by saying like, you know, the work that we're doing, it almost seems not archaic is the term that he used, but in a way that he's using such old school methods to create visual yeah. effects. And then he immediately jumped over to the current situation that we're dealing with right now with AI and is it a tool? Is it something that, you know, could really jeopardize the industry? And I think his approach to it was very, right, kind of right in the middle of like, this is what I hope for it to become. This is what I hope for it to be used for. Um, but yeah, like when you see an AI image out there, you know it's an AI image. And I know most of the time people look for the hands or like a, an obscure feature or something. Uh, but even beyond that, like there's there's just so many different ways. And you have shows that recently come out, you know, that have been kind of under fire for that. You look at uh, Secret Invasion, which used that AI-assisted opening title sequence. And then you have something like, Oh, is that like wh- where do we draw the line? So I-, I thought his answer was really cool in the approach of where do we see it kind of going, and 
how much of a of a factor AI is going to play into it. Yeah, and, and it's funny. It doesn't get as, you know, there's nothing more old-fashioned than just a couple drums of fuel yeah. that they're going to light up to make an explosion, yeah, right? The, that, beads, that, like, that's, the beads were really cool, too. The beads, yeah. Like, this is like old-school Hollywood. And I think going into Oppenheimer, the last couple years of knowing that this film is coming and seeing the billboards and seeing the standees in theaters with the countdown clock, we're like, did Christopher Nolan somehow get permission from the UN to drop a bomb and have them film that. Cause like you watch Oppenheimer and as we told Andrew, like that moment when the Trinity test is successful and it detonates, it is, I'm literally getting goosebumps thinking of it right now. It is so overwhelming seeing that, especially seeing it at IMAX because you are just lack of a better phrase, like just blown away of what you're seeing. You're trying to, comprehend this and it's so incredible to see how they pulled that off and then um how they pulled off you know the the scene afterwards where they're where oppenheimer's you know you know giving the victory speech so to speak and like how they did that with projections and in real time and and we got to say like yeah it kind of reminded us of like the scarecrow the scarecrow effect in batman begins that was a great and, and interstellar i, I can think of interstellar with the yes. books with um, the books yeah yeah and that, space, that, like, that sequence also happens sequences. in the train as well. If you ever, if you look closely, the train yes. is the pattern on the back of the the, the pillow. Yeah, is also like that. That's it shifts. And he yeah, used that, that after fear effects and anxiety, right? to create that. Like these are things that you could do at home, which is yeah. amazing. Yeah. That's like one of the cool. Like when I heard that, I'm like, I'm going to do that. But I he used, don't yeah, have the time. He used <laughs> iMovie on his on his iPhone to do it. He, on his iMovie. Can we start projecting our backgrounds to look like we're all just constantly having oh, panic attacks? Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, but so what a what a conversation. I think our podcast did answer yeah. the question: Was CGI involved? And there was because that projection was created in a computer to be produced on on the back of on Cillian Murphy. Projected. There's CGI yeah. there. And also all the iPhones they use to test the footage before they actually show yeah. on film. And that's I mean, also and, important. And that's the thing, right? Like that's like the I think the confusion. And I'm so glad he didn't he didn't give like a yes or no to that answer. Is like no, listen, people are confused on what makes up CG and VFX. And I think th there was another question that you asked Shay that you know why do people confuse the two? And it's because we're so used to the world of just visual effects being it could be SFX, a even. real explosion or SFX or VFX, like it could be an explosion done on set or it could be a completely rendered background like Pandora, mm -hmm. but we see it all as one thing where those are two separate techniques that Nolan approaches that like, no, like we're going to use whatever we can to get the job done. You guys figure it out, but I want to shoot as much as we can. Um, so yeah, does Oppenheimer use CGI by its definition? Yeah, it does, but there's no completely, uh, completely CGI created uh, shots right. in the film, right? It's like so such I, an asterisk. I, I on it, right? answer. Yeah, definitely, definitely an asterisk of an answer, but a very um, filling one. It's nice because you know we don't typically get um, recently as this long to talk with people and to talk to someone like Andrew about his craft and just really get into the weeds of all of the all of the work that it takes to make a movie like this. I. I'm more excited to watch Ibenheimer my fifth time now yeah. just to go in with all of the techniques and the the visuals and the the information that he's given us because of that. Once again, I want to say thank you to our friends at Universal Pictures and to Dineg for making this interview happen for us. Andrew, thank you so much again for sharing your time with us. 
on the movie podcast. We have some really cool stuff planned for Oppenheimer later this month. So fingers crossed you'll get to see it soon. And there's lots happening on the movie podcast. So make sure you're following us on all social media feeds at the movie podcast. Join our Discord. Subscribe and like us on YouTube. Leave a comment below. If you learned something today, let us know your favorite thing that Andrew taught us. I mean, there's so much that we learned today. So the comments better be flowing on this. If you want answers for Oppenheimer, the movie podcast has your back. So please stay here. We love what we're doing. We want to keep doing the show for you. And your support means the world to us. That was this time with the movie podcast. And we'll see you next. Yeah.